Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now, please enjoy the program. Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. It's Heart to Heart Friday, where Craig and I share some of the stories making headlines this week, and then we'll offer our insight and analysis. If you'd like to join in the conversation on what we're talking about, please call 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. Now let's take a quick look back at some of the other topics we discussed this week. Did they have a constitutional philosophy that you can make out? Uh, And did it uh, respect or conform to the constitutional philosophy of the founders? And several modern presidents really had no constitutional philosophy at all, and others, like Wilson, I think, had an unsound one. Uh, the second one is, is, did they take acts or you know, introduce measures that eroded the constitutional limits on government power and erode limited government? And then third, I judged them on their Supreme Court picks. I mean, the presidents shaped the judiciary wholly, and you know, sometimes the longest-lasting legacy of a president is the person that he puts on the Supreme Court. And most evaluations of the presidency maybe mention that, but skip over it and don't assign too much weight to it. When I'm in church and we get to the doxology, it, it's always very moving for me mm-hmm. because I feel it so deeply. Mm-hmm. And it, then it struck me that science, what is science? It's the study of God's creation. And what could be more praising of God than studying his creation as deeply and as hard as we can. And so what I wrote was, without much thinking about it, science is distilled doxology. And what that means is it's the purest form of praise. How can we praise God more than by devoting ourselves to studying everything that he has done? The other side needs 
60 percent uh, to change the Constitution. In states where pro-lifers have you know, funded campaigns aggressively, we've kept the other side. We've kept the other side under 60. They didn't break 60 in Kansas or Ohio or Michigan. And there's even a lot of Democrat constituencies in Florida that probably will not support this. Uh, senior citizens typically are not wild about legal abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida's a big Hispanic population. You know, some surveys show they've been trending pro-life. So I think this is certainly winnable for pro-lifers. You know, we can't fall asleep. We're going to have to invest serious resources. But I think we can stop the other side from getting 60% in Florida. The great thing about uh, saying, say, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed is that's being said by millions of Christians mm. today and millions of Christians throughout history. We know that you know, not everybody sings a Charles Wesley hymn or, or a Getty hymn, but every Christian has said the Nicene Creed. And that really binds us together with the mass body of believers in the church. And, and I think over time, merely engaging in that kind of action starts to shape how we think about ourselves and our congregation. And it's also immensely encouraging. It's a reminder we're not alone. Our church may be a church of 30, 40, 50 people, but we are reciting words that millions are saying every Sunday. These young girls are told how to talk to their parents, how to say, I'm going to kill myself if you don't allow me to do this. They are told where they can get the the testosterone for girls or estrogen for boys. Planned Parenthood has become one of the number one um, providers of trans or cross-sex hormones. The number of transgender clinics has risen exponentially. And so some people would also suggest, um, I hate to do this because I'm in medicine and I think most physicians are in medicine because we really do want to take good care of patients, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. have to say, I'm sure money does play a part. It's Heart to Heart Friday. Here are some of the other stories making headlines this week. Albania's parliament gave the green light on Thursday to a migration deal with Italy to build two processing camps for migrants in the Balkan country. Chipmaker NVIDIA hit $2 trillion in market value for the first time on Friday. Walmart on Tuesday reported strong profit and sales in its fourth quarter, ending in late January. China is taking dramatic action to prop up its ailing property sector. On Tuesday, the country did the biggest ever reduction in its benchmark mortgage rate. It's Heart to Heart Friday on In the Market with Janet Parshall. Craig and I have lots to share, and we'll put the first story on the table when we return. To join the conversation on the topics we're discussing, call 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. What if those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life? That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. 
Happy Friday to you, my friends. This is In the Market with Janet Parshall. That fellow right there is Craig Parshall. Yep, he gave me his last name years ago, and it's stuck ever since. He joins me on Fridays as we take a look at some of the stories making headlines and learn how to apply the word to the world around us. So we're being good Bereans. We're testing all things. We're practicing applied Christianity. We're exercising discernment. And we're getting ourselves ready to go out into the marketplace of ideas because out there, it's more than just ideas. It's people. And that's where we're called to go, to go and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we go real fast, uh, We or we may hit the pause button. If there's a subject that we think requires a little more digging into, we'll linger for a bit on that topic. But we're going to start with one that was a big news story coming out of the state of Alabama. And I'm... I, uh, this is an ABC News clip. So in full disclosure, it is one of the Alphabet Suit Networks. So uh, you might have to rearrange your furniture a little bit, depending on what direction the room tilts when you hear their take on the story. But we'll take it apart when we come back. Listen to the story from ABC News on Alabama and a decision they made about babies. Have a listen. This morning, one of Alabama's largest hospitals has stopped IVF fertility treatments after an unprecedented decision by the state's highest court. The ruling made Alabama the first state to consider frozen embryos as people. And now the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System says we must evaluate the potential that our patients and our physicians could be prosecuted criminally or face punitive damages for following the standard of care for IVF treatments. During IVF, multiple embryos are typically frozen to improve the chance of a successful pregnancy. But now, after the Alabama ruling, it could be a crime to destroy them. And advocates warn this could prompt other states to pass similar laws. What does this mean for us as a country? Are people not going to be able to get the care, medical care they need if they're suffering from infertility and you know, need to build their family. The issue now being discussed on the campaign trail. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley indicating she supports the Alabama court's ruling. Embryos to me are babies. When you talk about an embryo, you are talking about, to me, um, that's a life. Haley did not elaborate on what this could mean for families relying on IVF to conceive, like Gabby Goidel and her husband. I didn't think that anybody would want to stop us from having children. Observers say as many as seven states already have or are considering laws that could define embryos as people. Okay, so now let's push the furniture back into the center of the room based on the way ABC told that story. And now let me backfill with some of the facts. So this came out of Alabama. The Alabama Supreme Court in that state has ruled that embryos created through in vitro fertilization, IVF as it's often known, and are kept frozen or protected by a state law, and that overturns a lower court decision. So the decision was handed down in the case of James LePage and Emily LePage et al. v. the Center for Reproductive Medicine. And the high court determined that frozen embryos were protected by Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act. So an associate justice there by the name of Jay Mitchell authored the majority opinion, concluding that the wrongful death of a minor act applies to all unborn children, regardless of their location. He went on to say, all parties to these cases, like all members of this court, agree that an unborn child is a genetically unique human being whose life begins at fertilization and ends at death. The question on which the parties disagree is whether there exists an unwritten exception to that rule for unborn children who are not physically located in utero, that is, inside a biological uterus, at the time they are killed. 
Mitchell then wrote that the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act, which was first enacted in 1872, applies to all children, born and unborn, without limitation, and that it was not the role of this court to craft a new limitation based on our own view of what is or is not wise public policy. So an associate justice by the name of William Sellers authored an opinion that concurred in part and dissented in part to the majority, arguing that the claim that a frozen embryo was tantamount to a baby in the womb was clearly clearly contrary to the intent of the legislature. To equate, he wrote, an embryo stored in a specialized freezer with a fetus inside of a mother is an engaging in an exercise of result-oriented intellectual sophistry, which I am unwilling to entertain. Should the legislature wish to include in vitro embryos in the definition of minor child, it may easily do so. Absent any specific legislative director, however, we should not read more into this legislative act than the legislature did so itself. Thus, as to the majority opinion's conclusion regarding the wrongful death of a minor act, I respectfully dissent. So that's the facts of the case now, as opposed to the emotion that you heard from ABC News. Now, I would like to ask a question of all of you listening right now. Anyone listening to this program who did not start as an embryo, please raise your hand. The buses will wait. Well, give me a minute. You can use the lifeline, call a friend if you... Okay, well, there's the issue in a nutshell. Mr. Partial, break this down with your legal scholarly approach to things. Well, first of all... It... In, in one sense, I mean, for, first of all, all life is an important issue from a legal, moral, biblical standpoint. However, there's a hysteria of those that think this is a wrong decision blowing out of proportion what the decision really is about. It's about parents who wanted to preserve and then utilize those frozen embryos for the purpose of a child and the facility, neg- uh, at least allegedly, negligently handled them and destroyed them against the parents' desires. That's the context. Now, a wrongful death case, as an example, a pregnant woman uh, in Alabama. See, a pregnant woman is walking down the street. She's six months pregnant, and someone comes up and uh, you know violently assaults her, and in the process kills the child. That is a wrongful death. The mother wanted that baby. The baby has been killed. This does not say that for all purposes and all time under Alabama law, what frozen embryos are in all contexts. Only in this situation where parents are saying, you wrongfully deprived me of the child that we wanted. So in other words, those who want to extrapolate out that if they have, let's say, They've gone through IVF, they have three frozen embryos, and they don't do anything except keep them frozen because they aren't sure whether or not they're going to go forward with an implantation. They have not somehow harmed a minor child. No, no. And it doesn't address that issue, nor does it address the issue, quite frankly, uh, if a parent says, no, we don't want children, we've changed our mind, destroy those embryos, that's a different case. I'm not going to predict how the Alabama Supreme Court would hold in that case. Does the state have um, a, uh, a parent's patriae uh, standing in, in place of the parent role to protect the uh, frozen embryos? That's a different issue. This is a, a lawsuit brought by parents who said, hey, Whose embryos you, were right. yeah, you, you handled them negligent, negligently and wrongfully against our desires and your duty of care was breached. You know, there's a contract and there's a tort uh, involved here. 
uh, they signed a contract, they breached the contract, they also handled uh, the, the embryos in a way that was a negligent act rather than a careful and reasonable act. So, so that that's the context in which this, this decision by the oh, Alabama Supreme oh, Court made. Wow, I uh, must have missed that in the ABC report. Uh, but then, well, then again. But, but the hysteria is th- there are media sites out there and you know advocacy organizations that want to take any respect mm-hmm. for preborn life by any court in any decision in any context and blow it out of proportion as a harm against democracy. Uh, bigger, bigger. Uh, let me go to the core. Anything that acknowledges the personhood of the preborn is anathema to the pro-abortion crowd. You cannot acknowledge the personhood of the preborn because then you get into a moral quagmire if you are pro-abortion because you know something in that transcendent moral code that's given to every human being knows wait a minute, another human life was taken here. And so there's a problem the minute you decide to say, I recognize that as being human life. That's why we often quote, you know, Dr. Seuss, a person's a person no matter how small. Right, but, but interestingly, the dissent, one, ju- one justice on the uh, the Supreme Court, everybody else agreed either in full or in part, uh, dissenting judge, uh, justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, made a point of saying, look, this case, this law goes back to 1872. They couldn't possibly have anticipated, clearly, uh, you know, IVF procedures. Obviously, they couldn't. But there's another side to that coin. In 1872, the state of Alabama, the, the state house, the elected legislative body, believed that life began before birth that unborn children deserved, because they are referenced in the statute, deserve protection. And when they're wrongfully taken, then that's like taking a regular, uh, you know, person uh, who is post-birth. So that's the way the culture was in the eight and the 19th century. Something happened in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to come back. This is In the Market with Janet Partial. We cover a lot of territory. When we come back, I'm also going to give you a website that might be the answer for some people for whom this conversation is very germane. Back after this. Let me just put a capstone on the conversation Craig and I were just having about the decision handed down from the Alabama Supreme Court dealing with frozen embryos. I hope that Craig provided some more context and understanding for you because, boy, if you listen to the alphabet soup take on this, uh, you have to grab your anti-nausea medicine because they really spin it backwards. But remember, for one political party, abortion is going to be, they think, a cause celebre for the election, and they're going to push pro-abortion rights anywhere, anytime, any place they can. And so, again, the scary part of the Alabama Supreme Court decision for the pro-abortion crowd is you acknowledge the personhood of the preborn. And as I said before, and I, I, it, it, it was, it's an important point. Anyone within the sound of my voice who did not start out as an embryo, please raise your hand. There's no other way. In God's economy, in his biology, in the way in which he created us, this is the way in which we develop. So the personhood of the preborn, if you're taking the Bible, by the way, he knows us as a person even before we are an embryo. But there's no questioning that this is not a life, a potential life. This is life with potential, and there's a distinctive there. But the answer might be my precious friends down in Knoxville, Tennessee, the National Embryo Donation Center. They're absolutely doing unbelievable work. They do just that. They adopt 
frozen embryos. And I encourage you to go to their website. If this is a story for whom this is more than just dinner table conversation, but this is part of your life's journey, and you think particularly after this decision, maybe we need to think some more through on what we're going to do with the frozen embryos that we have in our life, how are we going to handle it? Let me draw you to embryodonation.org, embryodonation.org. As I said before, they're located in Knoxville, Tennessee. They are a nonprofit organization. They help families using in vitro fertilization manage their embryos and their options. So they've been around for quite some time, since 2003, way before the Alabama Supreme Court handed this decision down. And I recommend them to you if you are carefully and prayerfully considering what you as a couple might do on this particular subject. So again, the website is embryodonation.org. Fabulous people. Learn more about them by checking out their website. So now I want to turn to this absolutely horrible story. We've talked about it before, but now the parents are being vocal. Um, Do you remember this Indiana couple that had their child removed from their home for improper pronoun usage? Now, we're not talking California. We're talking Indiana. Indiana. And if it can happen in Indiana, I guess it can happen anywhere else. So this couple in Indiana is asking the Supreme Court to hold the state accountable for keeping their child out of their home after they declined to use his chosen name and pronouns. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I want you to hear from the couple themselves. Have a listen. 2021, we unfortunately had to become reluctant warriors when our child was removed from our home after DCS became involved in our family life. When our son was removed, it was like someone pulled the rug out from underneath us. Um, As a father, I believe one of my main goals is to keep my children safe. And I can't do that when the state comes into our house and takes our kid because we can't, in good conscience, affirm his transgender ideology. His disappearance made a, a huge hole in our hearts and our family, but we will always love him and pray for him. Our child was out of our home for 17, 18 months altogether, ultimately aging out of the foster care system. We were able to visit with him at his discretion, basically for about two to three hours each week. Though we pushed constantly for additional engagement, attended family therapies. Um, We were never able to have an agreement for additional time with him. So as a mom, having limited access to your children is, it's heart-wrenching. I miss his laugh. I miss being with him talking with him about everyday things, teaching him how to bake, how to cook different things. There's so many things that we are to our children, not just their first teachers, but basically their first loves. And to miss out on that during such formative time in his life, we'll never get that time back. 
That is a couple that uh, is going through the most hellish nightmare I think any parent could go through. That is Mary and Jeremy Cox, by the way. And they have gotten the help now of Beckett, this stellar legal organization for which I'm very grateful. They're pursuing the case on behalf of the Coxes. And Beckett is arguing that state courts allowed Indiana to keep the child from living in his parents' home due to their disagreement with the child's gender identity because of their religious beliefs. Notably, after the investigation, the state determined that the allegations of abuse against Mary and Jeremy were, shock, unsubstantiated, but they still argued that the disagreement over gender identity was distressing to their child. So they literally removed him from the home. And you heard Mary say they got to spend two to three hours a week with their son at his discretion before he aged out. So now he's deemed to be emancipated and that family has been irreparably harmed. Now, Craig, you hear that music and now you have a lot to say. But this is this is the new um Well, the new bludgeoning tool. The state of Maryland, by the way, is considering exactly the same kind of action, that it is child abuse if you will not affirm your child's mental illness. Can I put it in the plainest terms? If you will not affirm their mental illness, that they think they're in the wrong body, then it's not the child who should get help and love and compassion and counseling. It's the parents who are the abusers because they won't buy in to this mythology. I'll get Craig's take on the law on this when we return. Christians are called to go into the marketplace of ideas. Throughout history, men and women of God have been thought leaders, innovators, and forces for good. We want this program to continue in that bold tradition. Join me by becoming a partial partner. Your monthly gift will make a difference as we help Christians take a bold stand in the marketplace of ideas. Call today, 877-JANET-58, or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We didn't pursue an affirmational approach with our child because first, as Christians, we believe God created us as male and female. And as parents, it's our job to help our children to reach their full potential. And the only way we feel to do that is to raise our children through our Christian beliefs. Secondly, we didn't go with the affirmation approach because we did a lot of research on this subject. There's, there are many different approaches. We spoke to multiple mental health care providers and ultimately decided that affirmation was not going to help our child. In our experience, this is not an isolated incident. There are a number of families here in Indiana experiencing the same issues that we've gone through. The mental health support services that we experienced were very much following an agenda towards affirmation only, which for our family was not going to resolve our child's issues. We are speaking out about this case now because parental rights need to be protected in Indiana. Our family should have never had to go through this. And we don't want any other family in Indiana to go through it either. So they are petitioning the United States Supreme Court. Quick background on this case. And again, you're listening to Jeremy and Mary Cox of Indiana. We're not talking California. This is Indiana. 
So in 2019, their son said that he identified as a girl, but in line with their faith, they believe, as the Bible teaches, that God made people either male or female, that is an immutable characteristic, and they didn't believe in referring to him using pronouns and a name inconsistent with his biology. That's the affirmation approach that they were talking about. By the way, if you caught my conversation yesterday with Dr. Jane Alexander, she is the vice president of the American College of Pediatricians. They've just put out a statement where they have studied over 60 studies on the analysis of the mental health of gender incongruent youth. And what they found was there is often an underlying mental illness that is yet to be either dealt with or identified. Well, sure enough, as it turns out, the Coxes believed that their son was struggling with underlying mental health conditions, including an eating disorder, and they sought therapeutic care for both. But in 2021, apparently the state of Indiana, believing the lie that children belong to the state of Indiana and not to mom and dad, began investigating the Coxes after a report found that they were not referring to their child by his preferred gender identity. One would love to know how that leaked out to the state. Removing the teen from their custody and placing him in a, quote, gender-affirming home. Now, despite the unsubstantiated claims of abuse, they claim the Coxes made the child's eating disorder worse. This is the state now, even though it worsened after he was removed and placed in a transition-affirming home. So again, what Dr. Alexander pointed out yesterday is countries like Finland, Sweden, the UK, France, among others, have now hit the pause button because now, as they start really digging into the best standards of care for the child, that cutting them off, mutilating them, giving them hormones, puberty blockers, the panoply of all the barbaric actions that are taken against these poor children who are suffering, Um, They've hit the pause button because they've decided that perhaps the best thing they need to do is first do a deep analysis of what the underlining causes of this questioning are really and truly coming from. So, again, Craig Beckett is now the legal group that's front and center representing them, petitioning this all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Your thoughts? Uh, It's important to know that the parents have minor children, younger children than the child that is the subject of this case. Um, And... Sociological studies, studies by social scientists have shown there is a substantial increase in the probability that a family once investigated will be investigated again in the future, Mm. which means this story is likely not the end just as to this child for this poor family, but they have other children. And if they start questioning Uh, you know, raising gender issues and questions and social services decides to get involved again. This could be a very long, troublesome journey for this family, and we would solicit certainly their prayers. Uh, Now, the Supreme Court has not, first of all, the laws has been well established, but not frequently enough, quite frankly. Um, If you go back to uh, Yoder versus Wisconsin back in the 70s, um, in the last century, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court made it very clear that the combination of both parental rights and religious rights uh, create a situation where the state has to be very careful not to intervene in matters of medical care, education, and the creation and sharing of social values within the family. So this is an important issue where the parents should be the primary source of information and values for the child in the raising of that child. And by the way, the, the record is pretty clear that the investigating social service agency found no abuse. Now, here's what's going to happen, Janet. 
there are going to be a handful of legislatures in certain states around the country that are the leaders in this radical new idea of uh, family implosion. Mm -hmm. And they're going to say, we're going to set the trend. We're going to get our state houses uh, to pass some radical legislation defining abuse as disagreeing with your child's pronouns. And then once a handful of these states start passing these laws and definitions of abuse in that way, there are going to be some wishy-washy state legislatures caught in the middle that are going to bend out of you know advocacy pressure from these groups. And then pretty soon you're going to see a movement in your state, uh, listeners. So you should be alert to this. Abuse has been historically, uh, neglected abuse has historically been from the founding of this nation onward, a reason and the sole reason for removing a child from the care and custody of natural parents. But now, in the radical season of the 21st century, all of that is changing unless we do something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I said before that the state of Maryland is now introducing legislature. The, the idea, again, that they're going to scare parents. This is the new scared straight program. They're going to scare parents straight into now affirming, which is, by the way, when Dr. Alexander was on yesterday, again, VP of the American College of Pediatricians, she talked about the first step always is the socializing. And this is part of the four-step process of transitioning. Um, you you get them to be affirmed socially, i.e. Use, use, quote, preferred pronouns. And then you start doing the puberty blockers and then the hormones, and then you go to the surgery. So this is all part of a continuum. So that idea of using the pronoun is the most important first step into getting this person to get mutilated, uh, which is the end game, which is the surgery after all of this is done. But hitting the pause button in other state, in other countries, we're doing exactly the opposite here in the country. And I asked Dr. Alexander, point blank, I said, as a pediatrician, and she's been a pediatrician for decades, what is the catalyst, the spark for this? Because surely you didn't see patients coming in with gender dysphoria or incongruence in the numbers that you're seeing it now. And she said, I actually can't tell you what it is other than the role of social media and the political pressure and the fact that Planned Parenthood's big funding stream right now, if they can't get the abortions, they're telling kids, we'll give you the, the puberty blockers. So come on down to our clinic and we'll give you whatever drugs you want. Yeah, so yeah. those are societal pressures. Yeah, and you make a good point about the the backlash now from the scientific studies and the uh, the medical disciplines that are taking a look at this in a more serious studied fashion are now reversing the trend. And they're saying, you know, we, we, we've got to put the brakes on this. We... The medical uh, profession may have run run too too quickly headlong into affirming every child who, after seeing some after school special on TV right. about a trans a trans child or something at, uh, in the evening with their parents, and the parents now feel the pressure to affirm their child. And of course, every right. parent wants their child to feel comfortable in their skin. But being uncomfortable in your skin is part of the human development of a child <laughs> until they teenagers. become an adult, and sometimes even thereafter. Particularly okay? teenagers. It's a life journey for all of us. And Craig, I think that uh, we got a little gray in our temple and crow's feet and you can take or leave this advice but i'll tell you what mom and dad i think there's no excuse whatsoever to have your child on tiktok because if you start understanding a first of all you're handing over data to china i'm not in a big hurry to do that i don't think you want your child's data sent over to china they own it they run it they're grabbing all the data they can off of that platform but more importantly this is where the evangelists for this movement are showing up this is where the quote drag queens are uh they are so vile and so 
filthy. I can't even quote most of what they say over the air, but they literally walk kids through on how to change their body, what yep. kinds of clothes to wear, right. what to do with the genitalia you've got. You and, to hide and to hide your your affectation for this from your parents, because right. of course they're they're the enemy. Right. Uh, and I would go so far as to say, Janet, not just TikTok, but I would keep your kids off any social media that you do not personally be involved in on a daily basis. Congress finally, after years and years and years, woke up to the fact that there are harmful effects of social media on children. There's a bill called COSA right now. The Senate passed it. It's not perfect. I have some real objections to it, but it's now in the House. So on the federal level, and this is actually bipartisan, which is a shock to everybody because this is a political season, of course, and a national election coming up. But it's so obvious, Janet, that there are harms and the centrifugal force, the pressure uh, socially applied to kids to buy into things that they don't understand that are not based on science. You know, they always scream science. And yet the science now is saying, no, gender dysphoria is a problem, not a solution. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll go back to Nehemiah again. He's standing on the wall. They're repairing the wall after Jerusalem has been attacked. And he says, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, fight for your families. That trumpet is blasting right now. Mom and dads, you cannot be in absentia on this. The world can't wait to take your child captive through vain and hollow philosophies. So look well to the ways of your household. We come back one more topic this hour. This is In the Market with Janet Parshall. That's Craig Parshall. Back after this. So I want to tell you about some legislation that's moving forward in the state of Kentucky. It's called House Bill 47. And what this legislative proposal wants to do is to expand and protect religious freedom in the state of Kentucky. But of course, what we have seen, and this is just an encapsulation of an argument that's playing out at the federal level, but it's also playing out close to a courthouse near you, is this contradiction, if you will, between so-called LGBTQ rights and religious liberty. And this is where the whole, I'll make you any cake you want, but I will not make a cake for a wedding because for me and my sincerely held religious beliefs, I hold that union as sacrosanct and I will not violate my sincerely held beliefs by participating in any way, including making a cake for a wedding. Same principle applies, by the way, to websites and to the floral arrangements, etc. And this is this is going to come to a loggerhead sooner or later. And the high court, I predict, will take this up at some point because they have been sidestepping it and will not be able to do it any longer. So you've got gay rights advocates who are pushing back in Kentucky and they're thinking that it's going to make it more difficult uh, to protect the rights of the LGBTQ community. Uh, and they think it's going to trigger a whole series of lawsuits. But really, Craig, what I think Kentucky is trying to do is they see these kinds of cases all across the country, and if somebody doesn't want to violate or worse, be coerced into an outright vilification of those principles that they hold near and dear, Kentucky wants to put some protection in place. Talk about that. Justice Alito was pretty uh, uh, clear in his dissent, he was joined by Justices Scalia and Thomas in the Obergefell case, uh, the same-sex decision, where the majority uh, regrettably uh, found a fundamental right for persons of the same sex to be married regardless of or even if in conflict directly with state law. Um, but here's what he said was some of the unintended consequences of that bad bit of constitutional law. He not only disagreed with it from a constitutional law standpoint, he said 
in terms of the, quote, important consequences that are going to issue from that decision, he said it will be used, that is to say the same-sex marriage decision, to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you and I have seen that happen, and so have a lot of your listeners. Yeah. He was prophetic because he said that this was something that was going to happen, and his language was pretty strong. And he was also saying, I, I, I think he recognized the problem, but he didn't offer an antidote. He didn't say, this is how we're going to protect people with sincerely held religious beliefs from being categorized as bigots. And that's exactly what's happening. So here you are in the state of Kentucky that basically they want to protect and they want to have the broadest application possible of protecting the religious freedom of Kentuckians. And if you decide that you support that, you are ipso facto already some of the press reports coming out of Kentucky. You are a bigot. Well, listen to what what he said about how va- how vacuous the constitutional reasoning was in that case. He said, quote, if a bare majority of justices, that is to say of the Supreme Court, can invent a new right. And that's exactly what they did and impose that right on the rest of the country. The only real limit on what future majorities will be able to do is their own sense of what those with political power and cultural influence are willing to tolerate. In other words, well, you know, are we going to be able to get away with this without the academic and the entertainment industries and, and uh, the political uh, powerhouse uh, parties, you know, disagreeing with? In other words, what can the, what? What is the culture and the society willing to endure? Because if they're willing to endure this decision, we can invent any number of new rights. Yeah. So now let me take Alito's lofty statement and let me go back to Kentucky. So, again, you've got the gay rights community pushing back against this HB 47. And they say that it aims to weaken fairness ordinances by adding a private right to action to the existing Religious Freedom Act. Uh, But the person who is the primary sponsor of the bill says it's going to give Kentuckians, quote, a fair day in court if their rights to exercise their religious beliefs are infringed upon by government action. So here's how the NBC affiliate and and the NBC affiliate in Kentucky spun it here. Here's some anti-nausea medicine before I read this. Okay, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is designated, which is an a designated anti LGBTQ plus hate group. By the Southern Poverty Law Center, how's that for a spin, ladies and gentlemen, is a supporter of the bill. During the House Judiciary Committee hearings today, people spoke up about their concerns, namely that it would infringe the rights of smaller communities with LGBTQ plus friendly fairness ordinances like Paducah, Kentucky. So you say that the Alliance Defending Freedom, by the way, is a hate group because why? Because a hate group like the Southern Poverty Law Center called them a hate group. So therefore, ipso facto, they must be a hate group. This goes to what Alito just said about bigots, didn't he? Yeah, uh, a marginalization of anybody who takes their faith seriously and actually uh, tries to apply it to their life. Uh, you know, years ago, uh, and I was part of the group of lawyers who supported this idea, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed by Congress because the Supreme Court had made some uh, one in particular decision that seemed to erode free exercise of religion in the First Amendment. So Congress, both parties, uh, nonpartisan, uh, you know, both the left, the ACLU and groups like uh, the, the ACLJ that I belong to, conservative versus liberal, we all agreed this was needed. And RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, merely says that if your religious freedoms are violated, you have a right of recourse in court. Well, that's fundamental fairness. That's equal protection of law for everybody. 
So that's what uh, they were trying to do in this state. They were simply saying that if your religious freedoms are not accommodated, if they're disregarded and violated, you simply have a private right of action to go into court and to have your day in court to have those religious liberties protected. That's all that this was. This was religious accommodation. We've seen it for years and it's worked well in every other context, but suddenly now the sky is falling. Yeah, well, let me tell you another example of the sky falling. So there's a group working in Kentucky to try to advance gay rights and trample down religious freedom. And they call themselves, paradoxically, the Fairness Campaign. And they say this, and I'm quoting them, the Alliance Defending Freedom is a national interest group that seeks to fleece Kentucky out of millions of tax dollars by weakening civil rights laws, by traipsing about our state and to sue every city and county that has a fairness ordinance. Your response? Uh, Well, then that means the ACLU, which is in their corner, has been fleecing the American people for almost two centuries. (laughs) In other words, when civil liberties groups, and there are a number of them I've had the privilege to work with, almost all of them in one form or another, go into court and they win a case and the state or the city should have known better than they have to pay attorney's fees. And the attorney's fees goes to the organization so they can defend other people's fundamental rights. And it goes on that way. There's nothing wrong with that. That is our system. We get to do this for another hour. I hope you can stick around and listen. If not, you can go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Left-hand side of the page, you're going to find the words past programs. Click that on. You can download the hour in its entirety or either of the two hours we do every day going back a year. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Partial.